0: I like to think about technical debt as there are uh, explicit and purposeful decisions that you've taken along the way to um, not reduce quality, and it's not necessarily a reduction of quality, but you've taken some sort of shortcut that you've made assumptions around, and you are aware that these assumptions may change in the future.
1: Welcome back to the latest edition of Founder Vision. I am your host Brian Gupton with Clearview, and I'm here today with Nael El Shawa, uh, head of engineering for Perpetua.io. How are you today, Nael? I'm
0: excellent, Brian. How's it going?
1: Good, good, good. So, uh, tell us a, l- a little bit about your your background and your path to joining um, Perpetua.
0: Awesome. Well, glad to be uh, here and thanks for inviting me for uh, the podcast. Um, so I um, started uh, my career in engineering uh, almost twenty years ago. Uh, graduated from McMaster University here in Hamilton, Ontario. and uh, uh, you know started as a software engineer working in a variety of industries from retail, healthcare, finance, um, beginning of my career, it was, um, uh, more involved in, I guess, consulting type work, uh, working for various clients and, um, towards, uh, the end of that first part of my career got into product development and kind of saw the difference of, uh, building software for other people, uh, versus building software for us and, and, you know, the typical SaaS model and selling it, uh, to, uh different uh, different companies um, I learned a lot of interesting differences between both both worlds uh, there's similarities obviously you know you' you're in both cases you're building this, you're building software and then um, but uh, the approach uh, in product development is a much more uh, longer term uh, aspect of, uh, of software building where all the decisions that you're taking today, uh will come back to hunt you in the future and uh you'll remember exactly when different decisions were done and it's like okay now how do you navigate it um right. presents interesting problem in engineering in general where you're always carrying the weight of past decisions on your shoulders as you progress to uh, uh future uh, iterations and roadmaps and different types of customers um, anyway, so uh, uh, in in that uh, timeline, really uh, was presented with a typical question that um, different uh, engineers will experience at some point in their career, which is, uh, "Hey, now you know you're 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 doing really well um, as a software engineer. How about you start leading this team? And um, what does that mean? How does your day to day change?" Um, um, that's those are questions that every engineer on that journey will eventually have to answer for themselves, uh, and everybody's unique in in that aspect and how you how you approach it. Um, in my case, um, you know, i and uh, many people I would say share this same aspect where it's like, hey, you know, you you know how to build software and that's what you've been doing for five or ten years, uh, and that's your strength and. Uh, in your head, that's kind of like, hey, that's why I'm getting this further chance to do something different and lead a team because i'm I've been doing it so well as let' say as an individual. Uh, but it requires you to shift uh, in terms of kind of your thinking and what what matters and how how to uh, grow. But you're always like stuck with this uh, I don't know what to call it, but this um, question in your head of um, are you, are you doing the right things? uh when when i was an individual contributor much easier to kind of measure the progress or productivity it's like hey i've shipped all of this i've built x i've I've, um it's much clearer transition and many engineering managers and early managers maybe struggle with that initially it's like how do i measure my own productivity now if i'm not um quoting majority of my time
1: so when you, when you joined Perpetua, um, did you join as the head of engineering, or or were you promoted into that role later? No, I joined I joined as the head of
0: engineering in January this year, um, and um, uh, one of the things uh, you know Perpetua is building uh, e-commerce growth infrastructure for uh, brands across the world. Uh, there's an interesting thing happening in this space. Uh, around e-commerce, fueled by the pandemic, fueled by uh, obviously the internet, uh, but there's this uh, explosion of e-commerce platforms across the globe, which is creating a variety of different challenges for marketers to sell their products online and, and, and be on all these different platforms and uh, manage their advertising across uh, all these networks.
1: How, how exactly uh, does Perpetua help with that? So Perpetua, we build software that
0: um, uh, efficiently deploys your ad- advertising budgets across these marketplaces, monitoring what's happening uh, across your campaigns and uh, maximizing uh, your efficiency of your, of your ads. Um, so uh, we started off with Amazon and been doing, working with Amazon for the last three, three or four years. And uh, this year, started expanding into other marketplaces like Instacart, Target, and Walmart. Um, and we're seeing the same patterns across uh, major retailers across across the globe, uh, where they're replicating the Amazon playbook yeah. um, that's been in play the last five years.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's it's really interesting because you know these, uh, you know, Amazon in, a, in some ways is. Uh, a brand now and so much of their fulfillment is coming from, you know, smaller e-commerce, you know, players out there, you know, and I think it's, it's, you know, not just Amazon, but, you know, Instacart that you mentioned, Target, you know, these online marketplaces give, uh, you know, these smaller um, e-commerce businesses an an opportunity to have like a global uh, reach. But uh, you, you, you mentioned that, your platform, Perpetuous Platform, helps them do ad optimization. Could you elaborate just a little bit more on that, and and then I kind of want to move us back to some of the, the the topics that you had were touching on um, a little bit earlier.
0: Cool. Yeah. So um, uh, we seek platforms that are uh, have a combination of e-commerce and advertising components um, that are tightly uh, coupled in you know, from that aspect. And the reason for that is uh, we ingest a lot of the, your sales data that um, of, of your products on, on these platforms and, and we use that data to uh, predict and optimize what we should uh, bid on the various ads available on that platform. Um, as you know, uh, a lot of these uh, advertising platforms, not just on e-commerce, but like in general advertising on the, on the internet, um, big part of it is also search driven, uh, but there's a very different aspect on like um, search on Google, for example, versus uh, search on amazon.com um, from the perspective that I you know on Amazon, you're much closer to the point of purchase and the purchasing decision. Um, when you search for running shoes on Amazon, you've already decided that you're going to buy some running shoes. Uh and now the question is more like which which brand, what types, what features, but like you've already you already have some sort of idea of like what you're gonna spend. And we wanna ingest all this data, uh, understand kind of how these uh, products uh, product pages convert, and then using that information optimize uh the spend on the advertising side. Mm-hmm. And then we end up with this perpetual growth machine where your um how we're optimizing our ads are feeding future sales we're ingesting that in processing it and then re re-op, re-optimizing your your ads on that marketplace um, well, so, that's how it started on amazon and now it's like expanding where the same problem that we've solved on the amazon platform it's becoming a challenge for marketers to do the same thing across multiple marketplaces right
1: now well, i'm curious like i i don't run an e-commerce company so um you know uh, but as from a consumer standpoint uh, point of view if i go on amazon and i search for you know running shoes let's let's say to use your ex- example here I, I do occasionally will see like a sponsored product in my well, those amazon. are the ads okay and those are like
0: that's that's the interesting thing there is like on amazon these ads are not as obvious that they're ads yeah on uh, purpose right? i i, I, I yeah, on purpose. And it's like, it's, you know, you're searching for a product, they look like their product listings, uh, no different than any other listing on, on the search result page. But these are ads driven by um, your search, um, driven by some uh, first party data that Amazon has about you, which uh, creates a very uh, interesting, uh, and compelling uh, business proposition yeah. for for the brands that advertise on Amazon.
1: So I'm curious, and the, and just the last question on on this, and we'll move on to some some deeper topics here. But um, when I, I, when I do a search, is you know obviously the sponsored items are are um, ads, but are are the the way these marketplaces work these days is the price that I'm seeing for an item driven by a bidding process, and you know and so. If I see something, I'll um, you know. If I order a pair of shoes, sometimes it's fulfilled directly by Amazon. Sometimes it's you know from a partner. I don't even pay attention often to to sure. which one it is. But I'm curious, like if I do a search for some Nikes and it's you know it's not you know Amazon who's actually shipping those out, but one of their partners have those partners bid on you know whose uh, listing is 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 going to get seen and chosen. And is that affecting the price that I see as a consumer or is it just for sponsored ads? So like the bidding process is around which
0: listings show up in the sponsored ad slots on the page. There's a variety of them across the page and, and, and the bidding process is like, you know, you're showing up at the top, so showing up somewhere in the middle. Uh, and all of these are driven by a variety of factors. Uh, Amazon doesn't necessarily disclose all the factors of what what drives that, but it's like part of it like the quality of the product, the ratings, the, uh, the quality of the product page, how well it converts. Um, at the end of the day you can imagine some sort of calculation that is occurring behind the scenes uh, within Amazon to understand like and then how do we, how do we you know provide the best product to, to the customer? um but also how do we maximize our net sale from each slot so sometimes a slot can be a sponsored product where the the you know the value from the ad is much larger than the value from the sale of the product or not not much larger it's incrementally um, more i guess if that makes sense but there's some sort of calculation to decide like okay like uh, should we show this product here, uh, or do we show an ad in, instead of it? Right. Um, the price itself is not impact. It's not like part of the advertising aspect. The price is like more associated with the product. Uh, depends if this product is fulfilled by Amazon, where they bought wholesale from from a supplier, and then they have more control over the price versus your independent seller, where you control uh, more of that.
1: Right. Um, well, yeah, that, that's that's something that's really interesting. I think to anyone who uses those marketplaces, which is everyone, we're all curious like how we see how and why we see what we see. And uh, but I, I'm also interested. You brought up two other topics earlier in the conversation that I, that I'd like love to dig into now, if we can. Um, so you mentioned uh, technical debt, basically, and uh, how you know how to kind of manage that. Um, you know, as a, a company is scaling up, uh, I'm curious, like, as someone who has um, been on the engineering side and has joined several um, startups, you know, what what stage are you generally joining a, a startup at? Um, I've, I've had a variety of stages, uh,
0: but um, uh, most typically I've been uh, joining companies in the very early stages. Uh, were like, you know, 10 or 20 employees. And um, either as one of the first engineers or, the you know, uh, early engineering leaders uh, in, in the company and, and building the team. And that was kind of my experience um, most of my career. Um, and one of the things that I was looking at the next step when I joined Perpetua, where I purposely didn't want to be in the first Twenty people in engineering. Yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to see that next next part. I've I've done the you know the zero to twenty uh, path uh, a few times in uh, different companies. I've been part of larger uh, companies as well. Uh, but I wanted to kind of see now. It's like okay, from an engineering team um, coming in. Um, I didn't hire everybody. Uh, I'm coming in at a point where like there's a lot of uh, already you know, 20 or so uh, indi- uh, individuals on the team and and now how do we uh, grow and, and change and evolve um, over the next phase? So um, with Perpetua, that's one of the things that kind of attracted me and I was like purposely seeking in this role where it's like, I don't want to be building the engineering team from scratch. Yeah. Um, I want to take over an established team.
1: Well, let's talk, you know, so for a lot of our, our mm-hmm. listeners are, you know, entrepreneurs who may be working on their first startup or, um, you know, people who want to be entrepreneurs, but just haven't made that, that leap. And I think for non-technical founders, especially, um, there is an awareness of the concept of, of technical debt um, and a paranoia around it. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you could uh, speak to um, how concerned uh, you know, a non-technical founder should be when they're getting their, you know, MVP and you know, first iterations of their their product and getting a little bit of traction. How how concerned should they be at that stage about uh, technical debt, if at all? And at what point do they should they start becoming concerned about it? Great question. Uh those yeah, uh... start by uh uh you know explaining to the audience what technical debt is yeah in case people don't understand totally um
0: so there, there's many definitions of technical debt and, yeah. uh most have this stigma associated with them that it's bad uh that we should avoid it at all costs and we should you know how, how can we have technical debt? we just built this thing we can't have technical debt uh And uh, I like to think about technical debt as there are uh, explicit and purposeful decisions that you've taken along the way to um, not reduce quality. And it's not necessarily a reduction of quality, but you've taken some sort of shortcut that you've made assumptions around, and you are aware that these assumptions may change in the future.
1: Yeah, what what are some common examples of of those sort of assumptions that people are forced to make early on? Um,
0: So let's say, um, uh, I think uh, um, I'll tell you, I think actually an example um, that I've had uh, uh, maybe a few years, a few years back now, five years probably. Um, So I I was at this this startup flashstock we built. a uh, platform that connects global photographers to global brands and and we shot custom content for them. Uh, when this startup started, we were primarily focused on um, photography and still images. Uh, no videos, no GIFs, no cinemagraphs, nothing, nothing with motion in it. It was all still pictures and everything in our platform was modeled around the notion it's a picture that you're That you're um, uploading, it's a picture that you're seeing and downloading and all that. And uh, we came across a brand; Uh, they wanted to shoot video. Um, We our platform did not support video, and um, uh, you know the shoot was happening in a few weeks. And how best can we now um, enable the business to? to take, take this opportunity, um, we had to make a variety of shortcuts. The, the technical debt there that we ended up purposely and it was my decision to kind of like, okay, this is a shortcut we're taking, was uh, basically replicating everything around photos, and now we're, we're doing it again against videos. But now we created this different model that you can experience the platform in, um, you can be looking at it from a photos perspective. You can be looking at it from a videos perspective. When you actually, over time, when you actually think about it, um, whether it's a photo or a video, effectively there is there's a lot of similarities between both. There's some sort of preview that you're going to show in a gallery. There's some metadata at- attached with it. Um, when was it uploaded? Who was the photographer that was uh, that created it? How to download it? Um, when you upload a photo, it might be you know like it's. Uh, you know, seven thousand by seven thousand pixel uh, for image, for example. Um, your, how do you compress it so that you can display it properly as a thumbnail? Uh, Load it perform be loaded quickly in um, in in the gallery. Similarly, with a video, A video is going to have a thumbnail. Uh, it's a, it's going to be a compressed playable file so that it plays in your browser fairly quickly. It's not a twenty gig. Uh, MP3, MP4, I mean, that's playing. There's there, there's enough dif- differences between both, but there's a lot, a lot of similarities. The shortcut we, t- we took is that we duplicated all of these things. Um, and then what that resulted later on is it became harder when we had now mixed asset content of how do you mix both of these things at the same time when before they were considered to be separate. Um, you know, um, I still think that was a good decision at the time. Uh, but I mean, in hindsight, like, if there were more time, you would have looked at, like, okay, how do we restructure things? Where it's now the assumption that the business is just shooting photos is no longer true. We are now producing multiple types of media. And what needs to change um, architecturally across the system to support the notion that media can exist in multiple different formats? And it's not just all pictures um so i think that tech debt has to be something that you've explicitly decided that you're going to go down this path and take this kind of shortcut it's not like this accidental thing i think about it as a credit card you know uh i I like this analogy of tech debt as a uh, comparing it to a credit card where i explicitly go and purchase this laptop on my credit card my credit card doesn't suddenly increase every month without me knowing why it's increasing unless i I got stolen or or something but i'm aware of what i'm putting on my credit card and i'm doing it to create some sort of leverage for myself um, where it makes sense and that leverage can be as small as like hey i'm gonna get the points at the end of the month and it's over the long time this i'm buying a free flight using those points or it can be you know i don't want to spend you know five thousand dollars in a iMac Pro, for example, yeah. uh, at the at this time. So uh, thinking about it from a, a credit card perspective is really good. It's it's a explosive action that you take. It has to create leverage, uh, and then like any good credit card, you know you have to use it for the right things. Like you know, don't pay your rent on your credit card or your mortgage on your credit card. Maybe that's not good. It's probably not good financial advice. Doesn't necessarily create uh, leverage. I don't know, but um, but think about it from that point of view. And then, like any good credit card management things, it's like how do you pay it off at the end? Yeah. Um, the the dreaded
1: like, rewrite. Yeah. Right. You know, and I, you know, we talked to, oh, to founders all the, the re-write, time. The rewrite then
0: becomes more like it's like it's like declaring bankruptcy.
1: Yeah, but well, yeah, I, you know, I don't know because uh, I mean, I, I, do, I do love the analogy. Uh, you know, it definitely makes me think. But when you say that, it makes it seem like, uh, like I almost feel like you know, having talked to enough early stage founders that it's almost inevitable that you're going to rewrite at, at some point fairly early on. So in some ways, it's not really like bankruptcy because yeah, you know, it makes it seem like it's 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 uh, you know you've you've made bad decisions and now you've put yourself in a bad situation versus the, the inevitable growing pain of a tech startup, right? It's it's you've taken on this technical debt to ex- in, in, in 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 many ways to extend your own runway. You're saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, we we know we're making technical decisions today that, you know, are are things we're going to have to deal with later. But if we don't make these decisions today, there won't be a later. Right. Yeah. No, that, makes, that
0: makes sense. That I makes sense. And maybe, yeah, bankruptcy is not the right, right <laughs> thing there. But I guess maybe in different ways to think about it's like you, you're you're changing the type of debt. Yeah. I'm paying off my credit card with my line of credit, for example, and reducing the because at the end of the day, it's like the interest that you're kind of worried about there, right. and um, this new thing that you're going to create will also have tech debt on it. It's going to just be different.
1: Right. It's inevitable. Right. So,
0: <laughs> so it's like you're balancing all of that. It's like a lot of it is balancing these different risks. And, and I find like a lot of the decisions that you take, you're really just trading one set of problems with another set of problems.
1: So, and, and you, you, the other, one of the other things you mentioned is is kind of moving from uh, an individual contributor role to, you, you know, a, a management and leadership uh, position from having been uh, a, a developer. Um, you know, when you've made that transition or when you did make that transition, uh, how, how did that go? Did you did you get formal training for that? Did you have, you know, mentorship or was it trial and error for you?
0: Was, I think most people ask that question would say it was trial and error. Uh, the first time I received any sort of manager training or management training or leadership training It's probably eight or so years into my management career. Um, So a lot of it was, you know, through uh, observing what uh, previous leaders have done. And I had uh, some really good ones, uh, learning from them, and just like, not it's not even not formal training, but it's more like just observing how they've, responded or acted in different situations and saying yeah saying like yeah that's that's a good way of handling this type of problem yeah um, and and then at the, at the end of the day you're also try you're also creating your own brand of your that resonates with you and what you value um, so you're not just kind of copying what you're reading online and what people are telling you but you have to um, create your own version of it
1: so if, if if I'm a founder and I've you know built up an engineering team um, of individual contributors, what what are some of the warning signs that I, I need to make uh, an engineering leadership hire? Um, and how do I evaluate the individual contributors on my team to decide if if it makes sense to promote one of those people into that role? Even though they've had no prior experience, or do I need to go outside of the the company to to bring on that role? What what, what are some of the framework for um, making that decision? I think it depends on like the stage that the startup's at. So, well, um, so the, the stages sure. I've got individual contributors and. Um, how do I know I'm at the stage where I need a a, a leader over an individual contributor? Yeah, so
0: I mean, uh, so like so I was going to say, it dep- uh, at that stage, uh, depends also like the types of people you have you have on the team, um, and um, how you're how you're growing, and also influences influences that. And let me explain um, what I'm in there is this head of engineering, VP of engineering uh, type role in let's say a five person startup, for example, uh, will be required to still be very hands-on with the team. You are almost effectively uh, either the um, architect of a lot of the systems or how the systems are working and how we're doing the work. Maybe that's a shared responsibility with a senior engineer on the team as well, you kind of split it. But for the most part, you um, you're really hands-on in in the application and the code base every day um, and building the app or the platform with your team. And um, uh, the role of the VP of engineering over this lifetime of a startup from let's say five engineers to ten to twenty changes drastically um, from across across that, where you start off, like I said, you're hands-on uh maybe then as you're, grow- you're closer to 20 you're now thinking about like okay um, how does work actually happen um, across the team and and how do we um, start like you know uh, being more consistent or predictable in some of our some of our work if, if you're in a team that's like 20 engineers for example you can probably imagine the rest of the company might be like 60 80 100 people and there's other types of uh, problems that show up there where that revolve around communication and keeping people on the same page across the company. Very easy to do that when it's a company of 10 sitting around the same table where keeping everybody in sync is just like, hey, everybody, guess what? This is happening tomorrow. Uh, and then whatever uh, questions can follow after that versus if you're um, an engineering team of let's say 20 people within a company um, of a hundred, uh, so the, the this VP of engineering role becomes um, evolves with that um, uh, with the company as as it's growing. Um, when I uh, had my first VP uh, of engineering role, um, was a person that I used to have uh, dinner with once I've a mentor. I would have dinner with every couple of a uh, couple of months probably. Um, told me uh the the shelf life of a vp of engineering is around two to four years and like, i've always years heard that?
1: 18 months but
0: it was like somewhere between two and some uh, two yeah. four years like what do you mean why why is why is there a shelf life he's like you know you have you know almost two years to show that you can do the job you are hired to do and then and then you have two years after that to show that you can grow into the job that you weren't hired to do, but now you have to do. Right. And, and, and it's like this cycle there where it's like, okay, at some point, depending on the company um, you may no longer be the right type of leader for that type of organization and what is required there. And, 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 you know, you know, you've either, uh, you didn't grow fast enough within the needs of the organization or, or uh, uh, maybe that's not even your strong suit. Maybe you want to be focused on a different type of company. Right. Well, at I think what's,
1: what's kind of interesting is you sort of, you know, you talk about the stage of the company. What, what I kind of generally see is that at the um, seed stage, you know, leadership is generally the, the most skilled person in any department. So in engineering, exactly. it's it's the go-to tech guy, right? Exactly. It's the guy that that can answer those questions. The same thing in product and marketing, you know, whatever. And then the Series A happens, and there's a big shift that no one talks about, but where you know your your job goes. It's a transition from you being, you know, in your case, you know, the most adept you know in, engineer um, to where you're you're really having to delegate. Uh, all of the, the day-to-day problem solving, and then your job shifts into eighty uh, percent interviewing people because you've got to scale your team, and then yep. all of the other managerial functions that you have to do w- with a, with a growing team. And I, I think one of the things that I, I part of what I always feel like, you know, for a first time you know, VP of engineering or product or marketing or, you know, whatever, uh, often there's not an accounting amongst, you know, the the founders and other leaders for how much time you're really spending on the recruiting side now, you Mm -hmm. know, and and that there ends up being, you know, you're stretched really thin because there's just no way to, to spend less time on the recruiting front, you have to, you know, especially engineering, you've got to talk to a lot of people, you know, to, to, to get someone to bite these days. Can you, can you talk a little bit that towards that and how you've, um, you know, either successfully or unsuccessfully managed that transition? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's,
0: it's, uh, um, I think, uh, Oftentimes, like in that transition, I think about like uh, the word process comes to mind in a lot of different things. And and, and process also can have stigma associated with it. It's like, oh, it's slow, it's cumbersome, it gets in the way. But I think kind of like thinking about like process where there is good process and that is helpful for people. uh, And it's like things you've seen before uh, at that stage that help um, individual people do better so from a from a say interviewing perspective maybe as you know the company is evolving that interview loops become uh need to become more structured you know so that you can actually distribute that load across more people on the team rather than have let's say one person do all the interviews um so uh for me that's kind of one of the things we've done here at perpetua over the last 10 months where Um, being able to structure the process of interview process enough so that um, over half of the engineering team is able to kind of participate in it um, so that it's not i guess uh, um, already on one person to just kind of uh, do it i I still do a lot of uh, of these these interview calls but i'm involved in different ways today than i was let's say uh, eight months ago uh, where every candidate I had the first conversation with uh, before proceeding with the with the process, and now there's um, other um, other capable folks that can do that and and drive that along. Um, I think uh, that happens across the board in other parts of engineering, where uh, the introduction of process really to kind of um, make the communication channels clearer of how we do. Different things, so that uh, less time is spent uh, re-explaining. Maybe uh, what's going on. Say uh, incident management. How like how companies may respond to incidents uh, looks different when you're like five person team versus a hundred person team, and uh, you might see like situations where like multiple people are all talking about the same problem in seven different Slack channels, and very difficult to like stitch all of these things together before you do like really simple things to consolidate. It's like, hey, you know, we have an incident channel and now everything happens there. Anybody needs to know what's going on, goes in and sees the current status, when's the next expected response time or response, what is happening, what to communicate, uh, you know, another other areas around releases. When are we shipping things is something that gets Complicated as you grow, uh, which used to be very simple. It's like, hey, we, you know, it's very easy when we're five people to say, hey, new new app is out. Everybody knows, and everybody heard about it. And you've been you're sitting together in the same room. You're talking about it all, you know, all week or all, a couple of weeks. And, and but when when you're much, uh, not even much bigger, but let's say you're you know, 50 people or 100 people, um, can get uh, more uh, can get more complicated keeping people on the same page. On the same page. Now we have also everybody's remote. You know, um, you had like you know like uh, coffee breaks at work or lunch breaks where people are um, talking about what's happening and that that is uh, also keeping people in sync. I found that once, actually, uh, maybe not to derail the conversation, but I found that's one of the things that's been harder to replicate online. It's all the unplanned conversations.
1: Right, yeah, I mean, Slack doesn't do it. Yeah, you it know, makes it a little hard. You can have kind of, you know, informal quick little little chats, but um, yeah, I, I kind of feel like those, you're, you're we're gonna see just like- Even just the
0: overhearing of things. Like I can, I can be sitting in a room and I, I'm not part of this conversation, but I can overhear a couple of people talking about something. Yeah. And hear something that's like, hey, actually, that's not completely correct. And I can jump in. Right. Now it's like, if I, how do I do that? It's, uh, yeah, it's I have to be lucky to have seen the thread somewhere in Slack, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of them. It could be a private conversation in a DM that you don't
1: know. Right. Uh, and those conversations are happening asynchronously, so there's not... You know, there's there's not the sort of like, you know, in the moment, you know, like ability to jump in. I, I do sort of think that you're going to see Slack evolve the way like social media has evolved in recent years where it's more video and audio based. Um, but how do you manage that? Right. I mean, I'm sure somebody's going yeah, to. I think it's like a visibility yeah. thing. It's like, you know, going back to like the acronym. I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe
0: it is uh, the, the acronym Slack stands for searchable log of all knowledge
1: oh really I didn't know that uh,
0: and uh, but yeah that's the thing it's like right now it's like it's it's not discoverable as much as maybe I would like um,
1: so we're almost out of time I, I really wish we had booked more I might have to have you back on because this has been a great conversation totally I um, the- enjoyed it so much I, as, like, a final question, I, I would be curious, like, what, what would you suggest, you know, for, you know, founders looking to either make that promotion to to, to head of engineering internally or looking out, out, outside? Like, what characteristics should we be looking for for engineering leaders today?
0: I think from a fa- fa- founder's perspective, really um, thinking about, like, how you think about, I guess, engineering and how is that going to grow, change over time? So, uh, you know, like you might be a team of 10 in the company and there's like four engineers, let's say, um, when this team of 10 at the company becomes 20 or 50 or a hundred, um, how, what do you, what do you feel about like the, engineering in general of how is that going to grow alongside the company? In some companies, you know, it might be like you're not going to grow engineering as much or you're not going to be a team of 50 or 100 engineers at the company, for example, Uh, whereas maybe you don't need a head of engineering or you maybe need a different type of head of engineering. It's like, hey, I need actually a more senior um, hands-on type of leader but not necessarily someone that's going to like uh, grow the team to a hundred or fifty, for example. Um, I think always kind of when you're hiring someone, uh, you know, if you keep in mind the notion of like uh, there's this shelf life of two to four years, that at some point maybe this person needs to hire their boss in the future. So having that in flexibilities. Uh, in your in your and what you're searching for is that um, how do you introduce that into the into the mix? Uh, if, if I if you know I'm a five person startup and I hired someone, they have let's say you know they're ten years out of school let's say and they've done let's say one startup before, and like they're like you're not, you're now the CTO of this company. What happens if actually they they become past their shelf life? um how do they hire their boss so like thinking about like these type of things i think is important for first-time founders because these have become questions and and can create challenges later on um and and limits kind of like some of the decisions that you can you can do or or put the company in maybe a more difficult situation so i think uh, i think every every role basically you should Design it in a way that's like at some point maybe that role will need to hire their boss.
1: Right. Well, this this has been great for for, for those who uh, are listening out there and 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 say you know Niall like he seems like he might be a good a good boss like well what what uh, what's your pitch for joining the the perpetua engineering team?
0: Uh, great question. We're uh, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're building e-commerce growth uh, infrastructure for. Uh, e-commerce brands across the globe, we are solving a really hard problem that's only gonna get harder uh, with uh, what's happening in the market and the really explosion of e-commerce across the world. You're seeing uh, online retailers becoming advertising platforms. You're seeing traditional advertising platforms becoming e-commerce websites. You're seeing social media networks becoming both of these things. Uh, there's this whole convergence around e-commerce that's uh, that makes it really exciting uh, and creates a variety of challenging problems uh, to do this at scale uh, across all of these uh, various marketplaces. So if you're looking um, for a really exciting journey, uh, it's been a great ten. Mo- I've been here ten months. It's been really uh, amazing uh, learning about the space and and growing myself here um the teams doubled and uh we're expecting to do continue to do that over the next few years so we're based in toronto so um an eye for out for
1: us yeah, but your engineers are all over right what's that your engineers are all over right we're uh, across canada yeah we have engineers across canada not across the globe okay excellent so Thank you so much for, for, for being with us today, Nael, for, for listeners out there who are either interested in, in checking out uh, Perpetua's product or joining uh, the, the team there. You can find them at www.perpetua.io. And I'm sure you can check out their careers page there as well. Nael, Thanks so much. It's been great. I'll have to have you back on and for an update in a, in a year or two. Awesome, Brian. It was a pleasure. I'll do this again. Until next time, we'll see you again on Founder Vision.